Hi, I'm Isabella. And I'm Jeff. We're two Asian Australians who want to explore what it means to be Asian in the West. And you're listening to As I Am. Uh, super excited for this episode today as we are going to be doing a deep dive into corporate diversity in leadership and specifically we're going to be asking the question how diverse is your company and your company's policy we are so fortunate today to be joined by Keithy Ravi an Australian lawyer from Allens and founder of Diverse Women in Law a non-for-profit organization aiming to promote and support diverse women lawyers and law students it's so great to have you here how are you today Thank you. I'm well, thanks, Isabella. Uh, Really nice to be here and thank you for having me. Of course, of course. I mean, you know, when Jeff and I were thinking about this topic, we wanted to engage in a discussion with someone who is already in that space, Mm -hmm. but also doing more to promote that space. And I think it's one of those things where it's no secret that Asians are severely underrepresented in corporate leadership. You know, how is it that Asian Australians are so overrepresented amongst high-achieving university graduates, but really underrepresented in workforce leadership? And it's one of those things where you have, you know, people from Asian backgrounds really well represented in entry levels and mid-level jobs in Australian businesses, but they're significantly underrepresented as they, you know, head up the high echelons of a corporation or a business. And I just feel this is an enormous waste of talent. And today we just really want to be able to sit down and dissect not only the data that we found and that we've kind of um, researched, but also unpack the reasons why these obstacles remain in place. Additionally, we also find that these issues are often intersectional. You know, we always we talk a lot about breaking the glass ceiling and, you know, the barriers that women face in corporate leadership. But I always feel that these conversations always center around white women as well. And I feel like the urgency for gender diversity isn't reflected in the same need for cultural and racial diversity. So, Jeff, do you want to walk us through the results and research that we have found? Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, obviously, we were really excited to talk about this topic and it's something that means a lot to Isabella and I because we both plan or actually work in the corporate sector. But we also didn't want to just make some wild claims and not have any evidence to back it up. So, what we did was we went out and did an analysis of 10 of Australia's largest companies spanning professional services, law, consulting, banking, and industry. And we basically looked at their executive teams, not the board, we just wanted to focus on the executive teams. We calculated the proportion of women and also the proportion of people of color that are represented on these executive teams. And these were the results. So the percentage of female exec members across a sample of 10 companies spanning a total of 181 execs was 57 or roughly 31%. But the percentage of people of color exec members across the exact same sample out of 181 people was nine or 5%. So we also did a bit of research and looked at some other studies people did. So the Australian Human Rights Commission analysis found that in 2018, 97% of chief executives had Anglo, Celtic or European backgrounds. And a PwC report in 2017 showed that only about 4% of ASX 200 board members were of Asian descent. Keithy, what do you think of these results? Are they surprising? 
Are you shocked? <laughs> pretty, it's pretty um, dire, isn't it? I um, I've just I'm oh. engaging with the statistics because it's just too depressing. <laughs> I've been hearing <laughs> it um, really is. It really was. Yeah. 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 yeah, I think the first one of the first studies was Diversity Council of Australia. I think this is when we really started talking about racial diversity. It's the Beyond the Pale report, uh, which I think you might have briefly touched on, um, and that looked at diversity on ASX listed boards. And um, at that time, it, it was pretty bad. And I think very recently, they ran a similar survey again. Law Council of Australia, I believe, um, don't quote me on that, but uh, we're quite a reputable organisation. And they actually found that we went backwards. Um, so I, I, I think that when it comes to cultural diversity, there's definitely something that's that's missing. And and I think um, when, you, when you pointed out, Isabella, Often um, people from migrant backgrounds, Asian backgrounds are the high achievers in school, in the extracurricular mm. space, um, even in social justice sort of spaces that I see coming through university. And then somehow everyone just disappears um, when, when it gets to leadership. So I think we have such a long way to go. I mean, I have thoughts on why it's the case and why it's been the case till now, but I, I'm really keen on looking ahead and, and finding ways to remedy this so that we're not, you know, people like three of us aren't sitting here in 20 years' time having the same conversation. <laughs> um, so I think, no, it, 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 in, in a way, I feel like there is such an energy coming out of people coming through professions, starting the profession now mm. more than ever. Um, and I'm not that old, or I don't think I'm that old, but, but people that are certainly older to me said, you know, this isn't something we even spoke about uh, when I was in my 20s and early mm. 30s. So mm. we're having a conversation, but I totally agree it shouldn't stop there. There needs to be some action behind it. Um, but I think it's going to take a while for the statistics to really reflect um, the mm. change in mindset and growth that we're starting to see mm. some change on. I mean, in your opinion, what do you think are the root factors that do drive these barriers and obstacles because you know like it, it just doesn't make sense that just you know statistically we don't have this translation of really high achieving students arguably you would think that there would be you know a relative easy route to you know position of leadership but what gets in the way like what do you think are the interim factors that do kind of impede that progress yeah we use this term called structural barriers um which i think you've um you might be familiar with um and that's basically what's in place within the industry, within professional services that creates a blockage? Because you're right, if you you know, mm. follow it in the normal sense and you think you know, people are doing really well, they get into the workforce, they're still outperforming, what then happens? The thing that I'm starting to realise as I'm edging towards more senior ranks within a law firm, that it doesn't just come down to merit when you're, when you're in that position. Mm. There's a lot of other factors at play. And it can be extremely disheartening for someone that's always relied on their intellect, um, their sense of work ethic, um, you know, the ability to multitask well, their communication skills, their interpersonal skills, to then have this kind of almost a rude shock when you get to that stage, when you're leaping towards the next position, that that's not enough. I need to know people. I need to know how to network really well. Um, I don't see anyone like me being represented uh, in a senior yeah. capacity. So how can yeah. I meaningfully get there? And I think mm. that visible representation is something worth sort of focusing on because it plays a big part um, in, in how people position themselves, who gets promoted, um, you know, who chooses who to mentor and, and how you sort of set yourself up for that success. That gap is really evident to me because 
lack of visibility in leadership, I think is a bit of a vicious cycle that ends up repeating itself. Um, and until someone mm. gets to that position from that background, willing to bat for someone else from a similar background, I, I really don't see, you know, big change happening in that space. Mm. Yeah, I mean, because I don't know if you relate, Keithy, but, you know, I don't come from a family of lawyers. Mm. I am first generation. I, the first person in my family to go to law school. And I feel like you compare a lot of kind of these stories of children, I guess, like, you know, children of immigrant parents starting off in the workplace, not having this relationship capital mm. that I would assume that a lot of Western and Australian, you know, kids would have in the workplace. Mm. Um, and, I, I, you know, doing research in this as well, like I actually found that, you know, only one in four had access to mentors or professional networks mm. and even less had access to sponsors. Mm. And I feel like, I, I mean, I wonder how do you get past that? Is it just a matter of being able to, you know, once you get your foot in the door, leverage those social relationships yes. um, and just build on that? Is it a generational thing? No, definitely. I, I certainly hope that when it gets to our children, they see people similar to them being represented. Mm. And that I think mm. is step yeah, one. I don't think that solves everything, by the way. I think there's mm. still a lot of things that need to come in place beyond the visibility. There needs to be active mentoring, sponsorship and all sort of the critical things you've touched on. Um, but I too don't come from a family of lawyers. My parents migrated here when I was 10 years old. So I've sort of worked the system out for myself. Um, but I think that you refer to social relationships. I think the first point we all need to just come to terms with is how important that is. Mm. And that, that's something that took me a while to sort of completely understand the level and the amount of importance that actually plays in you know, where you end up and who sponsors you and what sort of opportunities you get. You cannot rely on the fact that by just being a pure high achiever and doing things by the book, working really hard and billing 100 hours a week or whatever it might be is going to get you to that level of representation. Yeah. It's actually the networking that you do in boardroom lunches and um, you know how you position yourself in front of partners, the client relationships that you cultivate, the business development opportunities you put yourself forward for, um, you know, the sort of soft skills that you engineer when you're at a client lunch or at Friday night drinks or whatever it might be. It's that sort of intangible connection that actually plays a big role in, in how people perceive you and your worth and um, how they position people in terms of, okay, I see this person as making it to that, you know, that's on partner track, or I see that person as doing really well and ending up as a director versus this person works really hard and they'll do the work. Yeah. Can I see them? Can I put them in front of a client? Can I see them as leading a company or leading a team? Maybe not. So I think there's sort of two sides to this. It's that coming to terms with, okay, as a person from a minority background or an Asian background, I just need to realize that's a thing and how can I do that and how can I work with the system in a way that helps me do that and stay authentic, which I think is another to touch on. Um, and then it's the system itself. I'm not going to put the onus on us altogether. I think the system needs to realize and the sector needs to realize that you don't need to be out there and um, you know, be a type A over-the-top kind of outspoken personality to do a good job in leading a team or running a business or running a firm, um, soft skills and being sometimes a bit of an introvert and having those you know ingrained values that we all have around respect and um, you know mm -hmm. how to position ourselves in, in a way that isn't over the top. I actually think are extremely valuable skills in leadership. So it's that reverse dialogue. I think that needs to work together uh, to really remedy the problem. 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think you've touched on a lot of things that um, I was going to talk into around this idea of like playing the corporate game, which yeah. can sometimes feel really foreign for people who have been raised in Asian immigrant families. Because a lot yeah. of the time, I remember my first ever casual job at was working in retail, and my grandma basically told me, "Hold on to this. One day you'll be able to get up to the top." Like she didn't understand like this principle that it needs to be more. And it, like now that I've got like a proper corporate job that's a nine to five she's she just tells me the exact same thing it's all about being like docile and benevolence and authority and not disturbing the status quo whereas a lot of the time people favor those like change makers the cowboys you know the people totally. who are like reaching out into different places but those people aren't necessarily welcome in a lot of asian cultures like you yeah. compare like our culture to like japan or korea where it's like progression is completely linked to age like yes. these concepts are like it's a very very different market and so how we were raised and having these sort of feelings in like instilled into us and then you mentioned that you had those realizations like yeah. I've, I've been starting to feel those things as well like this idea mm. of pushing back sometimes yeah. and not just taking everything as it comes is quite scary to me if i'll be yeah. completely honest and like having to come to terms with that mm. yeah and that's the thing like do you think that I mean, to an extent, is there a problem with this westernized leadership model? Mm. You know, like the the pressure to conform to this inherently Anglo, I guess, style of leadership where, like you said, Jeff, it's all about, you know, being assertive and all about self-promotion. And I guess this dissonance where you kind of perceive quiet deference to authority and respect mm. for seniority as values that don't align with leadership and how would you combat that, you know? No, it's a really good point. I've thought about this a lot, actually, about because I, I very much, I feel like I'm at that cross-section quite often because from mm. an Indian standpoint, I am quite outspoken. I've sort of done a few things outside the box. And, um, <laughs> you know, I in terms of the type of child I was and how I, the relationship I have with my parents, it's not that stereotypical autocratic kind of pyramid structure so in some ways in some circles within my own community I don't really fit in I'm quite different to the people I grew up with and my cousins and family members but in the sort of Australian corporate sector sort of standpoint I am still not sufficiently outspoken and out there and putting my foot at least at the sort of start of my career I, I don't think it's just the Anglo system that's at fault I do think a hybrid approach works best um, I don't think that it's just you have to be super outspoken and type A and um, I guess bullish about all of your opinions. But I also don't think um, deferring to authority and letting uh, age work its game and being super loyal gets you there end of the day. Um, there mm. are aspects of the traditional um, Asian style of working and, and um, the working model that I think do, does have some flaws. I think it suppresses in many ways opinions sometimes and positive change. And, um, uh, you know, there are issues with how men and women are perceived and how they speak up and, and how that is um, retaliated upon and, and that sort of a thing. So I think there's there needs to be an appreciation from both sides that that sort of hybrid approach works really best. And the reason I say that is that that's very much me. That's my working style. I think there's mm. that balance of there are times where I will withhold my opinion because someone more senior to me than, you know, that has 10, 15 years more experience, I just assume knows better. Um, I think that they deserve that credit and they need to be given 
um, that level of respect to be um, saying the right thing. I don't think it's right to interrupt or call people out publicly. I do believe in having more private conversations, um, you know, behind the scenes if you want to talk about something. But I also think you should raise things, in, in particularly to your um, superiors, and you should speak openly uh, about issues that bug you. I don't think completely staying quiet as a, um, a junior in particular is the answer. Um, so it's that kind of hybrid approach I'd be advocating for. Mm. Mm. And and do you think that there is this trend and recognition for corporations to do so? I mean, Jeff and I were just looking at, you know, the very high level overview, I guess, of the policy initiatives that a lot of, you know, these big corporations and firms do implement. Mm. And I feel like to an extent, I mean, like I've echoed before and alluded to, like the gender parity was surprisingly like quite good. Mm. I, I would yeah, say surprising. that I, I was quite surprised by, yeah, I mean, the the targets that a lot of these firms and organizations have achieved mm-hmm. in terms of achieving like almost like a 50-50 gender balance, between, you know, of um, the makeup with the executive team. But consistently, there seems to be this underperformance in, you know, reaching the targets that they set for cultural and linguistic diversity in the executive team. Mm-hmm. And I wonder... I guess what your opinions are on combating this through the quota system. Mm-hmm. I feel like affirmative action, the quota system, it tends to get conflated. And I wonder what your opinions are on the merits of the quota system, mm-hmm. to what extent we need that in the long term or whether this is just an interim measure until we do get these more you know, um, foundational changes that do occur. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm absolutely pro-quotas for cultural diversity. Yeah. I don't think this yeah. is going to fix itself unless we start there. Yeah. But, but I would qualify that by saying it can't work alone. I think there are a couple of things that need to happen in tandem to support and and really bolster that. So if you're going to set a target or a quota or a percentage, and I think you said, Isabella, that we haven't hit those targets for ethnic diversity. I didn't even know we set targets for ethnic diversity. They certainly don't exist in the law. I think it'd be pretty terrible stats <laughs> if we started looking at that. I think it would be great when, when we do start setting targets, but I think that needs to happen. Um, and yeah. if there's anything that we need to start looking at, look at the way, I guess, the gender balance has remedied itself, somewhat starting to remedy itself. Um, I think we have such a long way to go with Indigenous representation, um, oh, with other yeah. minority groups. I just don't see how else we can get there. We can probably sit here and talk about this for 50 years, and unless we've got an aggressive um, target to aspire towards and people are held accountable for, I, I, I'm absolutely pro those. I do think that there needs to be a few things to support that. So I think unless getting to a target or the pathway to leadership or partnership or whatever the highest strength is within the professional services firm is complemented with culturally appropriate support. So having Mm. mentors from similar backgrounds, having, um, you know, executive coaches, making sure people are being supported with, you know, certain types of clients and, and how that's all positioned makes a big part to play. And of course it doesn't stop once you've actually reached that level. I think there needs to be, um, again, a lot of support that is provided to to individuals yeah. because it. Yeah. You know, sometimes you look at people in very senior backgrounds, you think, oh, you've made it. That's so nice. And I certainly, mm-hmm. I get asked that question sometimes and I've got a long way to go. And I ask that question of people who are much more senior to me from diverse backgrounds. And they say to me, you don't understand how lonely and isolating it can be mm-hmm. as a leader sitting around a table of um, other very senior people and feeling like you're the odd one out. So it doesn't stop there. I think there's the yeah. aspect of 
it's all well and good to set a target. I think that's a great first step if people are willing to do that, and I think it should be done. Um, but unless you're complementing it with structural enablers, which is, you know, the mentoring, the supporting, the coaching, um, you know, as an industry really sitting there and advocating for people that have made mm. it, I can see that having its flaws and holes as well, and potentially dismantling mm. um, the system. So I, I think there needs to be a few things that few things that need to work together. But I think the argument that's often, you know, evoked when people talk about the quota system is that it actually undermines those who do get it through the, you know, do get it through affirmative action, like do get jobs through um, this aggressive approach. Do you think that's a valid argument, or do you think? the end goal of having more parity between, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse people, like it's, it's worth it. Like you yeah. know, it's the means to an end. Yeah. And, and look, I, my opinion is I, I, I can't speak for other people and, and how they might feel um, about when they end up in that position. And I know there's mm. often a lot of criticism leveled at people that have made it to senior ranks as being a product of a particular target that's been set or, um, you know, a, a particular program that's set up to support certain people. So I, I can see why people have felt because of the criticism and the, I guess, general argument around it undermines your sense of self-worth and um, your position. But my response to that is have some conviction in yourself. I mean, by, mm. by virtue of your diverse background, you are exactly what the profession needs. You bring so much potential and you've got to back yourself to not listen to that. I, I think that's it's going to be something you're going to keep hearing for the rest of your life in whatever position you're in, whether it's as a product of a target or a quota or, um, you know, working on a particular thing. And I've certainly faced it at various points of my career where just it's going to happen. I'm the only, I might be the only person of diverse background on a particular team working on a particular case, um, you know, being put forward in front of a client, being featured in a particular tender. If someone wants to draw the connection between that and, oh, it must be because you're from a diverse background. Mm. I wouldn't even engage in that. I mean, I know yeah. there's no way um, a firm or an organization with professional standpoint would ever want to undermine their brand image and their sense of professionalism by putting someone who's not up for the job in, within that uh, role. So I, I've, I, and this is only because I've such a strong support network and through diverse women in law and other circles and my mentors, I've been able to have these active discussions and they've reaffirmed my sense of confidence and self-worth that I very much deserve to be there. Um, but yeah. I think that's what we kind of need to repeat to ourselves, almost like a mantra. Otherwise, it's not going to happen because it, it is isolating. There's no strength in numbers when you get to these senior ranks because you might be the only person there. And you've kind of end up having, you just sort of kind of have to sit there and live with yourself and go to sleep at night knowing I very much deserve to be here. I've worked incredibly hard. And in many ways, I am outperforming my peers and I'm being selected for things because I bring such a unique skill set. Um, mm. that, that kind of goes back to my root, um, I guess, imperative for setting up initiatives like DWL and otherwise. That, that dialogue, I think, being flipped from the outset as diversity is an asset is I really think where it kind of starts mm. and we start reinforcing and changing mindsets as a result I, I do think we'll get to a point where you're not sitting there and you know arguing whether it's a quota or target or or anything like that it's just a given that person deserves to be there um I think that's a very roundabout answer for what what you just said but no no that was that was but, fantastic. but I think that's that's an important thing to make it clear. Like I, it gets it's so much easier said than done. I have those moments yeah. myself where 
I feel like I, you know, I'm not as smart as my counterparts and that mm. person is getting to do more things. And, you know, is it because of this reason? And it is just that point where you need that community of support around you to tell you that's okay and you very much deserve to be there. And yeah. I really, that's yeah. the answer. Before we start going to your work with DWL, which I'm really excited to hear about, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on whether or not you think with people of colour in particular and, you know, diverse women in particular, is there more pressure to excel and I guess be exceptional because the odds are already stacked against you? Like arguably a white guy, you know, an average white guy can easily get get a job anywhere, right? And I feel like, I don't know if you feel this way, but sometimes I feel like I need to like exceed a certain standard to be able to even get somewhere. Totally. You're not, it's not something you're hazarding. It is absolutely true. I see this time. Yeah. You're going to have to work. We're going to have to work twice as hard, three times as hard. I think our male counterparts from diverse backgrounds will probably work twice as hard. We'll have to work three times as hard. It's just the way it's, um, it is because of the way success is perceived and how Mm. certain just something as purely by virtue of your first name and surname can put you in such a different spotlight compared to someone with a, you know, diverse or ethnic name. Um, I think that that is ingrained in our DNA because of the way we were raised, because you're always told not to settle for second best and you Mm. have to be first and you should be number one. And, you know, why didn't you get an A plus and why did you get an A? And, um, you know, (laughs) why aren't you doing more things and look at your cousin and your family friend and and seriously, it's like literally what you're doing from day one. (laughs) When you think about that, you kind of like have that firing, fighting spirit in you where you are constantly just never happy with with settling for something. So you're, you've got that in, you've got that sense of work ethic and drive and not wanting to do it. But then the odds are stacked against you, like you said, around who's being selected for things, who's being put forward to yeah. presents well in interviews, how people engage with them. Um, and so it's that, that just means that you will have to work twice as hard. But I have no doubt we can do it because, as I said, we've been doing this our whole life. Um, mm. But, but I, I don't think it's a walk in the park. I think it's going to take some time for it to for the scales to be evened out. Yeah. I'm so mm. hopeful though. I'm, I'm genuinely, I'm so hopeful. I think I, there's so many people with Asian backgrounds starting in entry level positions and yeah. I'm super interested to see where they're all going to be in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Yeah. Cause like I look around at a lot of my coworkers, there's a lot of us from Asian yeah. backgrounds. I'm like, you guys are incredibly talented and smart. I have literally no doubts that you will it's go very far. Yeah, so um, I don't know, we can talk about this now. And obviously we've, we did this analysis, we looked at the results and it does feel dire and it can be a bit depressing. But honestly, I'm so hopeful that if we yeah. were to repeat this exercise and actually that would be kind of fun, maybe in 20 years, yeah. we do the exact same and exercise. And much older and I have yes. to <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and we look at the exact same companies and we yeah. run the same numbers. I feel like those numbers will be in a much, much better place. So on this note of hope and looking forward, we are super keen to hear what you are doing right now with DWL and essentially just walk us through, firstly, what is it? I mean, I gave a very brief overview, but I'd love to hear you um, talk about it again, as well as your motivations for starting DWL. Sure. Um, So DWL, I set up when, um, sort of about almost two years ago, we sort of formally incorporated in May 2019 and um, it's been going on since then. So it's an not for profit. Um, it sits outside the, the Law Society University um, space. It sits outside a law firm. And that's sort of um, 
objectivity was quite important. I can touch on that as well. Um, but it's very much set to support these intersectional issues that we've been talking about. So um, women from a range of underrepresented backgrounds, not just culturally diverse, but also mm -hmm. um, diverse in uh, the sense of whether it might be Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander by background, mm -hmm. um, LGBTQI, um, from low socioeconomic backgrounds, living with a disability, living with caring responsibilities. I do think that you are in a very unique position when you're at those intersects and often um, in, in what I've observed and, and the stories I've heard and the people I've come across who find themselves in that position do find themselves in that no man's land state where it's difficult to find direction in terms of your career. It's difficult to find a mentor. Um, it's hard. You, you just really lack information, which you know, lack information and lack access. So we're trying to work out how to remedy that solution because um, there and there is sufficiently a big group of people, I think, to, to cater to. So um, in leveraging off what organisations out there are already doing and what law societies and people like you guys are doing and law firms, we thought we'd try and fill that gap. And then the first step was finding other diverse women um, from those backgrounds who have um, transitioned into senior roles and who have um, who can speak with lived experiences to really come forward mm. and share their stories. And mm. I, I honestly, when we set it up, I thought, you know, CV, cover letter writing workshops, or, you know, let's sit there and put people through programs and, um, you know, have positive mentoring relationships and all of which we've done and it's gone really well. But it's interesting how some of the most powerful work and the most rewarding work DWL has done has just been through storytelling. So very much like mm. how we are talking now, like on a podcast and just sharing really candidly our experiences. Sometimes mm. you run sort of small sessions on campuses where it's a panel of four or five women speaking to a group of students and we speak about, you know, all those key issues. How do I go about finding information? How do I combat imposter syndrome? I'm literally the only person that looks like me in my university class and when I go to yeah. interviews I feel so out of place what does it even mean to network um you know how do I present myself on day one um you know how do I navigate those difficult conversations at work where do I go and what we've heard from the feedback coming out of those sessions is that has been the most useful um candid, constructive tips that they've received. Because mm. I think what the danger that happens when a lot of people are talking about diversity is you sort of gloss over the details and you talk about it more in that wider sense. But when you drill down to the detail about, well, how do I actually get there? That's where some of the dialogue is missing. Um, mm. That's a separate issue. But I, I really did feel like that intersectional issue was a big glaring gap. Um, and I I can see that being a lawyer, but but I would say it goes so far as to more, most professional services sectors. Um, but, you know, I, I think it's done so well in a short period of time. We've had so much support, um, the firm I work at, but a number of firms in Sydney to the point where we're now thinking of branching Australia-wide um, next year and starting to think about working with high school students and more senior women. Mm. So that point about hope, I think, has been on point and proven in real time for me through the reception of DWL and how people from very, very senior ranks, like extremely senior judges, right through the students, through people across the industry has just come forward and, and joined forces to, to really support women. So it's been very rewarding. That's fantastic because, mm. you know, I, I'm Vietnamese and I don't know, I personally don't know any Vietnamese lawyers, um, much less those who are, you know, at a high ranking position. And mm. I remember I did this subject um, as part of my course and 
it, that involved going to Shanghai for a couple of weeks and we learned about like economic and business law. But I remember most poignantly, one of my professors was a Vietnamese lawyer. Mm. And that to me was just groundbreaking. And it, it was crazy because he was just Vietnamese and he was a man, but you know, that the, the fact that he was Vietnamese meant so much to me. And even though he was yeah. a man, I could see myself in that position, much less if it was a Vietnamese woman. And yeah. I think like it, 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 I think you're so right in saying that, you know, it's so important to kind of see, you know, a version of yourself being represented because otherwise if you don't, like how can you ever imagine yourself there? So yeah. I can't even imagine like what it'd be like to be in a room full of women who do look like you. And I think it's yeah, just a fantastic yeah. initiative. And I think, you know, you see time from t- time to time again that grassroots initiatives do really work. Um, so I think, yeah, DWL is just, a, yeah, it just sounds fantastic. And, and I, I test that further by saying not just, you would probably, you may probably find yourself in a similar position when you hear from um, women from other ethnic minorities, not just Vietnamese, but mm. also from, say, African backgrounds, Indian backgrounds, um, you know, the range of Southeast Asian backgrounds, which is why I think at the outset I was very keen on DWL casting the diversity net very wide mm. um, because there are some organisations with siloed focuses doing really great work in specific you know, sectors um, with, with specific minorities. But I've found some extremely interesting connections and networks being forged between, say, women from an Indigenous background from, with the women who, um, you know, identifies as LGBTI or people from mm. different racial minorities connecting over such shared, similar, analogous lived experiences. Absolutely. Um, and I, I kind of, I, and that was something that I kind of had at the back of my mind. It's like whilst we're sitting there working towards a point where we're all um, you know, finding people that we relate to. I think that intercultural, intersocial cohesion is equally important. And I wouldn't want to be in a position where, you know, we've managed to work themselves out and, and, and I'm a very, um, uh, very ingrained in the South Indian community, for example, and that's, you know, my background and that's why I was raised, but I'm very keen on branching out and learning about other cultures. And, and I, I've really cherished the times that I've I have an Egyptian mentor. I have um, women from Indigenous backgrounds as as my colleagues and counterparts, and I learned so much from their lived experiences. Mm. So that's something that I think is really important to see at the outset as well. But but like you said, I mean, you, when did you do this subject, Isabella? Maybe a year ago or something? Yeah, it was a year ago, and it, it, it's so profound because you know I'm yeah. st- like he's he's basically my mentor now, and it's just crazy that. Like something so simple as having a shared cultural identity is just so significant. Like this is what white people feel every single day, you know? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, you know, you met this person when you were what, a second year student, a first year student. Some people haven't met that person till they're like eight years into their career. <sighs> and, yeah. you know, you go through your entire career feeling completely out of place. And I think that needs to start at uni level. I'd go so far as to say, as soon as you step foot into university, you should see people around you that you can relate to. And I think that changes the way you perform at uni, how you get involved in things, your confidence, you know, where you end up, where you end up working, um, who you align yourself with. So that's really, I think, what DWL is trying to do to set people up with visible role models all the way through so that right from the outset, right through the end of your career, you feel that sense of support and security by looking at people with lived experiences to give you give you tips yeah oh that that's just been hitting on some some deep notes because uh, i think younger and we've talked about this on a lot of younger episodes um isabella and i have mostly i guess during our formative years more western friends because i think deep down there is this feeling that oh maybe if i align myself or i attach myself to um, white people i'll actually experience 
some degree of extra privilege than I actually get or I get exposed to more opportunities is a big one that yeah. um, we keep, keep coming back to. But I really think if from a younger age you are exposed to these incredibly impressive people of people of color in exec totally. positions and doing amazing things in the world, which I know there are, yeah. but mm. actually just showing people from a young age that this is possible, this is what you can be. That would, that would be just like so important. And honestly, I wish I had that around. Yeah. Exactly. And people who are so impressive as well, right? I don't know about you guys, but particularly in like early to mid 2000s when I just arrived in Australia and I was the only person in, in, a, in my primary school, high school, at least year seven and eight of, of a different background. I was quite ashamed to talk about what I was doing at home and my background and how I talked. And, and, and like you said, I felt that sense of extra privilege being around um, my Australian friends and um, you know, would kind of obfuscate the reality of what I was doing. And I was doing some, you know, extremely cool stuff. My parents put me forward for all these great things. I was getting excellent support, but I didn't have those visible role models that were a lot older, mm. I could see. And I'm just thinking if I had at that point in time met an Indian or a, a different background um, woman who was um, surrounded by people like her with a, a really kind of a dynamic life and personality and career pathway, I would have been more confident in, in being myself. And and I think yeah. that's something that, you know, no one should ever have to water down their identity. And luckily I extracted myself out in, in time and then I met people and I, I managed to get there and, and I'm very, very proud of my roots now and I speak very openly about it, but people go their whole lives without doing that. Yeah. So it's a shame really. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Do you think this is also a generational thing as well? you know like yeah totally I mean 20 years in time like uh, yeah I think that'll be fantastic to to see what I will agree happen I think I'm so so proud of the generation coming through and people that I learned so much from the students that come through DWL who at the age of 22 when I was a fourth, third fourth year uni student um, studying law I didn't I don't even know if I would have sat there and engaged with an organization like Diverse Women in Law. Like I was mm. all about the law society and being in the moods and things that I felt made me on par with my white counterparts who are also studying mm. law at the same time as me. And I have seen such a show of support and interest from the young women, men and women from diverse backgrounds coming forward and being open about their background and talking openly about their challenges and barriers. I think they're giving the people that are older to them a run for their money. I'm so proud of how mm. impressive and the desire to be themselves that I'm seeing coming through. So mm. I think onwards and upwards from here, if I'm already seeing this in someone in their early 20s that have been really having even stepped the door in a firm or otherwise, I just urge everyone to keep that going, like keep that passion and clutch onto your identity as much as you can. It is going to be your biggest asset when, when you're coming through the ranks and there'll be times where you will be the only person from a diverse background in a room full of people that look nothing like you. But you've just mm. got to reaffirm that that sense of um, validation and have that sense of indication of how good you are and what you have to do and just keep that going because I really do think it'll pay off. Mm-mm. I guess on that note, because, you know, this conversation we've been talking about you know, us driving the momentum, you know, people of colour, diverse women, diverse people, I guess, driving this change. Yes. Have you found in your time with DWL that systems are already in place, are receptive to the work that DWL is doing? And I guess what you are trying to engineer, like, do you find that there is this white allyship that is needed, I guess, to change structures? 
Yeah, it's a very good question. And the, the thing is, whether it's needed or not, it's there. <laughs> That's the majority. And you need to yeah. deal with the fact that the system in the way it stands at the moment is comprised predominantly of Anglo-Saxon men and women. So yeah. whether you like it or not, we need them on our side. But I yeah. would say is you should want to have them on your side. We should always be inclusive of how we're going about this because you don't want to end up in a position 20, 50, 60 years from now where you've alienated people and you haven't gone about it in a collegiate way. Um, we had to make a couple of decisions when we set up DWL about, you know, are we going to mandate that this whole organization will only engage with women from diverse backgrounds? You know, how do we set up mentoring programs? Who should be on our board? Who should be on our committees? We, we've revisited that multiple times since then. And where we've landed, just as an example, is our board should be led by diverse women. I think that's mm. something that came forward very quickly. So um, I think to the, the top rank of an organization that stands for something else. We thought from a values, visibility, representation, drive perspective that diverse women should lead the charge for other diverse women um, in this respect, but we should be absolutely open and inclusive of how we engage with champions and allies and firms. So, for example, our mentoring program, a lot of our mentors aren't from diverse backgrounds. Um, they're mm. male champions of change that have wanted to come forward and share insights and be a sponsor. We absolutely welcome that. And whilst the board is sort of set aside for, for diverse women, our portfolio managers, um, people that run committees and specific projects, plenty of guys involved this year, which has been really great. Um, so to have people involved in the debate, and it's been, it's kind of something you've got to strike a balance, right? You've got to work out when's the right point to to stick to something and when's not. And I've certainly not formed these views by myself. There's been a lot of consultation and collaboration, but me personally, what I was ultimately driven by is look at the numbers. You cannot fight this alone. You're going to need people on your side. Um, the majority as it stands in senior levels don't look like me. So I'm going to need to find a way to corral that support. And so yeah. that's really where we've ended up in this stage where um, you know, the mm. system is working together and I've, mm. I've found nothing but goodwill come forward from them. That's so heartwarming to hear. Yeah. It's so good to yeah. hear. I love that. I love that. I'm actually genuinely surprised to hear that and very happy to hear that. Cause I, I don't know. I think my expectation was that there would be resistance to or not resistance, but I guess some sort of, um, I guess backlash because I don't know I think arguably you'd think that people in power wouldn't want to relinquish that so it does make me feel it does make me feel hopeful that there is this support to cultivate some sort of parity and I guess you know increased representation for you know diverse people yeah. and look maybe I'm completely naive and there are people out there that are very critical of what we're doing but we have, we have worked really hard to not make that the case. Mm. So it hasn't been easy. I think if we stood our ground and said, we are DWL, take it or leave it, we don't care, then maybe we would have had that adverse reaction. So in that sense, and I'm not in any way saying the onus is on diverse people only to do all the work. I think it's a shared responsibility. But I think there's a way with EQ and IQ you need to go about the discussion with other people. Mm. And so, um, you know, my biggest sponsor and, at, at, at my firm is, is a male from a white privileged background and he has been such a sole driver and supporter of all of my work, um, put me forward for various things, such a strong supporter of everything I've done. Um, and so just bringing them, him along the journey of DWL and why it was important and um, sharing information. But I've, like, you know, everything that I've done has never, ever been um, – 
has never compromised my work product or mm. my work ethic. And I think seeing that working in tandem has really reaffirmed to people that, you know, this isn't something that you're just doing and taking advantage of and you're, you're very much a believer of this. Um, and likewise, not just me, but the other board members, one is a very, very impressive judge. Um, and, you know, she's sitting in a court full of other people that look nothing like her. She's a diverse woman herself. And so the way she's gone about um, speaking to other judges, bringing them along the journey, you know, having students shadow them, come and sit with them in court, share their stories, engage in that level of dialogue, I think is really important. So um, it takes some work, but I think it can be very rewarding and I absolutely think it can be done. I mean, look at the year we've had with everything that's happened, mm. um, you know, from the elections to Black Lives Matter to how the world perceives race and gender at the moment. It's absolutely the right time to strike. I think it's it's the time that we have this window of opportunity. If you don't do it, it's a lost opportunity. And I, I really feel like if if things like this and this excellent podcast you guys are doing prime example, like it's a micro example, sure, it's a two of you guys, you've got a bunch of people coming along, but there was no podcast like this when I was going through uni. And the fact that there are people like you guys coming forward and and starting a dialogue, it, it makes such a difference. And and any any small bit you can do out there, whether it's, you know, helping a friend out or you know, being a mentor to someone else, putting someone else forward, um, sharing the intel that you have, I think is all going to get us to that goal. Or going back right to the very first thing that you spoke about in this podcast around representation and the statistics, I, I really think we can get there together. Oh, I love that. I love that. This is a beautiful note. Oh, that was such a <laughs> That's a thing. Like Jeff and I, like while preparing for this, we were messaging each other, being like, This is depressing. Like just looking at the statistics out there. And like just I genuinely depressing when you start looking at those Yeah, no, but that's the thing. Like I I think this conversation has genuinely made me feel so hopeful about, you know, just the future. And I think you're completely right. You know, this momentum right now is like the best time to make the most of this opportunity. We just want to say a massive, massive thank you. This has been genuinely such a delightful conversation to have. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks so much for tuning in, everybody. If you enjoy this podcast, show us a bit of love by clicking the subscribe or follow button. Uh, We really appreciate that. Otherwise, we'll catch you guys on the next one. See you later. Bye.